0: Welcome to the Bigger Cash Flow Podcast, where we interview business owners and real estate investors that share tips and tricks on how to grow your cash flow and reach financial freedom.
1: Welcome everyone to another episode of the Bigger Cash Flow podcast. My name is Bo Kim, your host, and today we have an exciting episode with Travis Hornsby. He founded Student Loan Planner after helping his physician wife navigate ridiculously complex student loan repayment decisions. To date, he's consulted on over $400 million in student debt personally more than anyone else in the country. He is a chartered financial analyst and brings his background as a former bond trader trading billions of dollars on Wall Street. He brings that same intensity to analyzing the best repayment paths for graduate degree professionals with six figures of student debt. He's helped over 1,500 clients save over $80 million on their student loans and has been featured in US Newsweek, Business Insider, Huffington Post, Rolling Stones, Bigger Pockets Money and now the Bigger Cash Flow Podcast. Welcome to the show, Travis. I love that
0: last part, but you're making me blush.
1: <laughs> that was a mouthful. You're amazing. How you doing?
0: Good, good. Excited to be on the show and hopefully add some value for your listeners today. So
1: let's just jump right in. And Travis, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your life before student loan planner?
0: Sure. So I was a a bond trader, and I was really interested in helping others because my hero was Jack Bogle, and I thought it was really amazing how he focused on keeping costs low, giving the maximum returns to investors long term. I thought that was really amazing because I understood compound interest thanks to growing up with my granddad, who was a great investor, and got to kind of watch, you know, how that could you know, make such a big difference in someone's life over many years. So I thought, okay, I want to go be in investments. So I just like networked online. I was on these investment forums, you know, just like crazy. And I've got a job from that. And so I went up and worked my way into the trading desk, this giant mutual fund company, traded $10 billion of bonds, really honed my Excel skills, and, you know, learned how to manage huge reams of data. And I just, I I really liked having those that skill set, but I just wasn't passionate about being in a big company environment. And so I kind of got really interested in the fire movement, you know, and the whole ideas behind Mr. Money Mustache and Position on Fire and some of these other people, you know, in the movement that were talking about retiring early. And I thought, well, okay, if I don't like corporate America, and I don't think I will like corporate America anytime soon, then I'm going to try for radical early retirement. So I did that. And I traveled around Europe for maybe about uh, half a year. And then all in, all in was probably out of the workforce, about 18 months, just traveling, went to Latin America for a while uh, and eventually met my now wife. And so we were t- kind of talking about her student loans and that gradually kind of became something that I had to become really knowledgeable about personally, because I wanted to marry this person and I wanted to understand our finances. So, cause you know, it was so important to me in general, cause that's just, that was my personality. And then I found out with all my Excel skills that I had as a bond trader, that I was having trouble modeling it. And I thought, well, shoot, if I'm having trouble modeling this, then something's really, really wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so that was kinda like the genesis for student loan planner was just stumbling upon this super complex problem that nobody was really solving.
1: A lot of us that who start in corporate America that have that aha moment, I feel like they either end up working more to reach fire earlier but you decided to make a radical change and you know kind of go on a sabbatical for 18 months that's like a mini retirement did that change your perspective on life and what's important or anything like that that you can share with
0: us oh yeah i think i think more people need to be focused on sabbaticals rather than early retirement you know for me i was just burned out and that sounds ridiculous to say that i was burned out after 3 years in the workforce when my dad worked in the workforce for 40 years you know, and yeah. my mom worked in the workforce, you know, 25 years. And so it's like, okay, how can, how can this guy, you know, who's got every privilege under, under the sun be burned out after three years? How ridiculous is that? Right. But I think more people are, are kind of realizing that you only live once and yeah. you, know, you can't necessarily, uh, get a gold star for fulfilling someone else's dream. And if you are not in the right seat, then you owe it to yourself to do something radical to get in the right seat, or at least to go on a journey to try to find the right seat. And I think that I'm more of a believer in meaningful work rather than early retirement. Now, it, it kind of took me a while to realize that, but kind of what I'm realizing is I think that most people that have a healthy approach to this are going to have mul- multiple retirements. You know, you're going to you know over your career, like you maybe you'll build a company, you'll sell it, or you'll get involved in a real estate deal, and you'll you know just be tired of dealing with the same set of properties maybe you'll divest right and then maybe you'll be away from it a little while and you'll realize what parts you miss about it and then you'll use those lessons and start something new you know so for me it was just more of like my i had this interesting conversation with my brother like he really likes routines he really likes knowing where he has to be at work when he has to be at work he likes predictability like and that's the you know a lot of people in the workforce there's nothing wrong with that but i think for you know some of the people out there probably the, the same kind of people that you know, uh, accidentally struck a stone in the wall and created fire. Now, maybe I'm being a little, you know, self-serving here, but, uh, (laughs) you know, I mean, for the crazy people out there that like building things, you know, I think that being in the same spot for years and years can be just kind of really difficult. So, uh, you know, this, the nice part is I could kind of fuse two of my interests, uh, you know, helping people like my wife who really don't care about finances and this interest in financial independence. And actually there's all kinds of intersections with all these different student loan rules and how somebody that maybe made some decisions that they wish they could change a few things about them. And you can turn that person from just a really sad, depressing situation and show them how and empower them to be the next wild success story. So that's what I love doing really. That's awesome.
1: So you mentioned after your 18 month trip, you met your wife and you had to learn about student loans. Did you have experience dealing with student loans in your own finances? How was your finances like?
0: yeah so remember I, I said I had every privilege under the sun right so for for me that doesn't necessarily mean that I had you know a silver spoon in my mouth but it just meant that I worked really hard and, and got very lucky being born in the right state so I was born in Florida Florida has the bright futures program and then also my parents even though my, my dad was a teacher you know didn't have a ton of money but they got into like the prepaid tuition plan in the state so right away when going to school I had you know this huge advantage of having basically tuition covered by the state of Florida for everybody that got over like a kind of a low, relatively low SAT score. And then on top of that prepaid tuition that kind of was refundable. So it covered like the tuition on top of that. So before getting any scholarships, like I already had those two things to like basically give me like some money towards housing, you know, and have tuition covered. And then on top of that, I got, you know, some scholarships that I stacked. And so from doing that, I came out of school, not only not owing any debt, but probably positive, you know, around like twenty to $40,000 in, in net worth. Uh, instead of owing the typical college debt, I had the typical college debt and assets. So wow. I was very, very, very lucky. Uh, and I just kind of attribute a lot of that to, you know, my parents, uh, you know, being very lucky in the state that I was born in, uh, you know, being very lucky with the teachers that I had around me. So I, I, and also I'll say this, you know, for a bachelor's degree program, it's a lot easier to get scholarships. And a lot easier to come out with, if you're going to come out with debt, it's probably going to be a modest amount of debt, right? And my wife was, uh, you know, she went to medical school and medical school is super expensive. And it doesn't matter, you know, if you're the smartest person since Einstein, like there's a ton of people that are really smart to go to medical school, right? So the medical schools don't have any reason to give big scholarships. And maybe there's a couple that do, but they limit their class sizes to, you know, hundred people. So the acceptance rates, you know, 3%, you know? So there's yeah. there's just not a lot of great scholarships out there. And And, you know, my wife, like, You know, she was super frugal and her parents sacrificed a ton of money to try to help her go to medical school and she still had a lot of debt. So I thought, wow, like what if somebody is just totally, you know, financially illiterate and takes out a bunch of debt, like what would happen to them? And so I wrote about some of the things that I was using with my wife, like the spreadsheet that I developed with my kind of bond trader Excel background. And I shared that and that thing went viral because like nobody had something out there like that. And so all these people, I like put in the article, like, oh, by the way, I have, I do a little bit of like student loan consulting on the side, and I got so many people reaching out to me, like, I want a plan, I need help, like, I'm drowning. This thing looks like it's really useful. What, what should I do? And I, I was like, oh, okay, like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do this and see, see if it's interesting. And it was super interesting, which is why I decided to do this thing more full time.
1: There's a lot of. You know issues and stories about student loan and how there's a bubble right now, and it seems like there's so many people around me who have student loan debt. They also have high-paying jobs, but they need to figure out how to navigate through all of this, right? And I think that's what your company is trying to do. So, can you share with us a little bit about some of the research that you did? You know, especially when you were helping your wife, as much you can share with us. And is there any kind of mistakes and pitfalls that even you ran into early on that, looking back, hey, maybe I would have done this a little bit differently.
0: Well, we certainly would have managed her loans a lot differently if we had known what I know now. I mean, basically, you know, the, the PSLF program would have actually saved her probably about $80,000 if we had managed it correctly, according to the beginning. But instead, she made some mistakes consolidating her loans, and then that erased a bunch of the credit that she would have had during her uh, residency and fellowship training. And so instead of having years with the PSLF credit, we had almost no credit towards PSLF. So it was a really unfortunate set of circumstances. I'll say that the, uh, you know, the the thing with the research that I did, uh, honestly, I poured through like federal Q&As and, you know, c- you know, comments that the departments made and, you know, resources the Department of Education put out. And I must have spent, I don't know, what when, when I was starting doing this, I probably spent dozens and dozens of hours pouring through this stuff. And I had to understand all the rules perfectly to build a spreadsheet that I felt confident in, right? So- you know, I had to make sure that that stuff was accurate. So if anybody wanted to kind of do this from scratch, that's what I would kind of suggest is just going on to a lot of the federal Q and A's about income based repayment programs because they have a lot of details in there. But uh, but I thought, wow, you know, this this stuff should be able to be boiled down to something that people can either read online for free if they have a limited time, <laughs> or, you know, if you have a big enough problem, then you know, you can, you know, pay somebody for help. So one of the things I'm passionate about is trying to help people in addition to the people that we kind of make a profit on, which is, you know, the typical client would be like a dentist who has 400,000 of debt. who's trying to save an extra 50 to a hundred thousand, you know, managing their loan forgiveness strategies the right way. Like that's like a typical client of ours, you know, and, and a non-typical client that doesn't pay us for anything. We had a lot of people reaching out to us about, um, uh, about paying their student loans, at, you know, while they're in prison. So the reason is because we have an article that ranks like the top, on Google for, you know, how to pay your loans in prison. And I did that in, I did that intentionally not because I thought it was a great way to find clients, but uh, but if you think about the impact that we can have in somebody's life, if you simply add an agent to your student Loan account before or during, you know, your time in prison, and instead of your interest compounding you having 16% collection charges and watching your credit score drop several hundred points where you're not even able to get a loan, you know, when you get out of prison to be you know, a uh, you know a successfully reentered member of society. You know, the student loans can actually tank somebody's finances, which puts them at a higher risk of uh, going back to prison. Um, maybe out of sheer desperation. So that's a little thing that we can do to fix that person's or help save that person's. Situation, right? So, so we have kind of multiple goals. Like, basically, the 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 way to summarize it was: the student loan planner exists to help people with fifty thousand to a million dollars to student loan debt live freer financial lives without stress and anxiety. So, like, that's why we exist. But within that, I have like goals of, like I said, helping people, you know, reenter society. Like through that one example, also saving people's lives. A lot of people are suicidal over their debt. I get emails all the time. It's really, really stressful emotionally. I don't handle that kind of stress well, but I get these people like, they're like, I'm going to jump off this bridge at this point in time. And so I have to refer a lot of people to like, you know, mental health and those kind of things. Not, not a lot, obviously the majority of people are, are dealing with it okay. But then also uh, marriages, you know, we probably save uh, a lot of marriages that are worth saving, um, but just by showing people, hey, like this financial stress that, you know, it's going on in your marriage is actually solvable. You can overcome this you know, it doesn't have to be the thing that causes you to split up. You can, you can get a handle on this. So I don't know that th- those are a couple of examples. Um, you know, there's a ton of numbers behind it, but that's the why, right? You have to have a why for being in business. It's, it can't just be at least in my opinion, like, Oh, let's make more profit. I mean, it can be, but I don't think that's going to make you want to get up in the morning. Like that's part of the reason why I wasn't super thrilled about corporate America is even though we had a big purpose in life, you know, it still did feel like you were kind of like a cog in the machine when you have, you know, 10,000 employees or more. It's, just, yeah. it's difficult. Let's kind of tie this into,
1: you know, the theme of this podcast where we talk about, you know, interviewing entrepreneurs, business owners who are trying to create cash flow, right? And a lot of my listeners are real estate investors. And the way that I personally viewed student loans was that, you know, if we're starting off a race of financial independence and financial freedom it seemed like people with you know 50 100 or other six figures of student loan debt aren't even on the racetracks they haven't even entered the stadium it it feels to me like they need to get there to zero and then start on their way Um, can you kind of talk to us about how you view it Um, is it something that they necessarily need to pay off first To get started or can they do both at the same time
0: yeah so i'll give you an example here so a lot of people think that to get to zero you have to pay off your debt completely right like that's the typical way of thinking about debt is to get to zero you got to pay your debt off well a lot of your listeners will understand with real estate that you know having debt in some situations can be a good thing you know if you can get interest rates at a low rate or you can get favorable terms and you can make sure that your net worth is going to be growing over time then debt's actually not that big of a problem as long as it's backed by an asset. Right. So the problem with student loans is there's no asset backing it. So it's not a, you know, an asset backed va- you know, debt instrument. So, yeah, you know, there's nothing to see. You can't go see someone's brain when they don't pay you, you know, your student loan payment on time. Right. Right. So for that reason it's, there's inherent insecurity because unlike, you know, houses or uh, land or other things like humans have feelings and emotions and sometimes those are unpredictable and you know sometimes those, that human capital is affected by recessions and things like that. So an example would be somebody who is a chiropractor who has 250000 of debt and a $50,000 income. A lot of people would look at that person and say, that person's screwed. They have no hope in life, right? Financially, right? Like if you went to talk to a traditional financial advisor with that kind of debt amount, that's what they would say. But instead, what that person can do is say, well, I can pay 10% of my income after a big deduction. So it's about $100 a month, $150 a month, something like that your student loan payment at the end of 20 years that person might have to pay income taxes on the forgiven balance so say 250 grows into 300 now they have to pay 200k in taxes in 20 years from now so you got to save another 500 to a thousand dollars a month in a brokerage account or maybe even real estate right to pay off in a lump sum that 200k tax bomb at the very end of the 20 years you know an example in that situation you're, you're looking at that chiropractor and you're saying, wow this guy's on like negative negative 10th base, right? I mean, in terms of put it in a baseball terms, like, or negative, negative 10th inning or whatever, I don't know. And uh, and so this person, instead of fe- feeling sorry for themselves, trying to get back to dollar zero, that person, if they have a good amount of capital and they know the different, you know, uh, FHA rules or, you know, the different kind of lending standards, like they could probably go out and buy a starter property and start a real estate empire, you know? And that person, instead of being kind of a kind of a victim mentality, that person's actually just in need of a plan, and that's all they needed. They didn't need any kind of unique, shocking, you know, uh, you know, radical life change. Like in fact, I would say that if the person's just simply willing to drive a paid-off car and live in a house that's cheaper than they can afford, uh, then everything else will fall into place. You know, the not-for-profit government loan forgiveness program that loans; those loans are forgiven tax-free. And so your net worth might jump six figures overnight. You know, it might have a six-figure increase overnight. So it's kind of like you've run one lap already, and then you get another lap all at once. You know, that's like happens automatically. You don't even have to stress about it. So I think that most people that are focused on cash flow need to realize like student student loans are are in some for some people they're a debt and they're a bad debt because they're not backed by assets. And then for other people, it's actually a good debt in the sense that they shouldn't try to pay it down, they should focus on investing instead, because their debt to income ratio is so high, it doesn't make sense to pay it off. That's
1: very interesting. Because, you know, some of my listeners, uh, especially that one friend uh, who had 150k in student debt, he was, you know, just asking me, hey, what do I do with this? Because I know, Bo, you're going out there and buying rental properties, and you're growing it. But I'm just like drowning, I'm paying all these monthly payments, and I have nothing left. And I was really looking at his finances and I was not seeing the case, but I think it's perspective in terms of what can you do, what kind of programs are out there. So maybe you want to delay and reduce those payments and buy a cash flowing asset and just increase your net worth over time. That's a very interesting perspective.
0: So let's say a pharmacist has 200,000 in debt and a lot of pharmacists in, especially in urban areas that are you know popular to live in, They're actually having job crises. So we say there is a student loan bubble. There's actually a a bubble of professionals too. So for example, the number of pharmacy schools tripled in the past like 12 years, tripled. So you have literally tripled the number of graduating people with pharmacist degrees and all of the giant national chains are like, this is fantastic. We have this giant labor force that we didn't have access to. And now there's no negotiating leverage in most parts of the country. So now I'm actually hearing a lot of pharmacists that are struggling to get full time hours. So say that pharmacist is making 80,000 working 25 hours a week instead of 140,000 like pharmacists used to get really easily, right? So that person instead of feeling sorry for themselves can say, well actually if you pay, you know, 10% of your wages, right? You're still left over with like 72,000 or something like that. So that 72 working 25 hours a week is greater than what you would make As a college grad, right? So, that income, since it's stable and predictable, even though you're not getting as many hours as you used to, you could use that to build your real estate empire, you know? So, that's a case where, you know, say that pharmacist like decides that they're gonna use that stable income as, you know, kind of an asset, right? To build a portfolio of rental properties. And before long, like after a few years, maybe that real estate side interest will become such a big deal, right? That they won't even need. To have to rely on their career as a pharmacist anymore. So they've kind of relied on their education and their skills and their initial job kind of path and use that to chart a completely new path. So I just... Kind of thought I'd throw that out there, just um, just in case. You know, a lot of there might be a lot of health professionals listening to your podcast that are thinking, "Hey, you know, I really wish I could get into real estate, but I just feel like I can't with my student loans." And actually, nothing can be further from the truth.
1: I know you mentioned in your blog about loan refinances. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what a loan refinance is and what individual might be able to take advantage of this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say if you have private sector employment and your debt to income ratio is below one point five to one. So that means you have 100K in income and you've got debt less than 150K. That's debt to income ratio 1.5 to 1 or less, right? Also, you have to have an emergency fund of six months expenses in the bank. I don't want anybody refinancing that's at all financially unstable because if you do, you're not going to be able to pause your payments. There's a chance that you could default, right? And then if you default with private loans, there's no remedies. You know, they can, You know, it's just, it's just a mess. You do not want to default with private loans. So that just simply means if you have a – you know, a a good debt to income ratio, meaning like you owe very little debt relative to your income, you're really solid financially, you know you're not going to get any loan forgiveness. Well, now you have like a six and a half percent interest, you know, debt that's not tax deductible. That's not backed by an asset. That's just a pain in the butt. And you want to get out of your life and you should get out of your life. So there's no benefit to keeping debt around that you know you're needing to pay off, especially if it's student loan debt. So for that reason, somebody could refinance that six and a half and maybe save 1% or 2% on their interest rate. So they could cut their interest costs, meaning that if for the same dollar amount of payments, more money is going to principal, which means you're going to get out of debt even sooner. So I'll tell you that the way that most refinancing is done right now is through lots of ad-based relationships called affiliate marketing. So you have a lot of websites out there. If you type in like any kind of refinancing-related search phrase into Google, you're going to see a lot of companies that have links that if you click on those links to apply for refinancing, you know, you're know, you going to get a lower rate if you find one and, and go through with it, but they're also going to get a big cut. So what we did is decided to try to introduce price competition into the market by offering the uh, a, a majority of what we earn as referral compensation for these different companies. We give that back to the reader in the form of a cashback bonus. So as an example, somebody could refinance $50,000 with earnest, you know, through our link and get a lower interest rate, hopefully, but also a $500 cash back if they, if only if they use our link on our site. So same thing with, you know, common bond and a lot of these other companies, you can get anywhere from right now, $200 to $1,000 cash back, which is not the main reason you should ever refinance. That's just a, a gravy, you know, thing, right? That's just like an extra bonus. And so the main thing you should be focused on is getting a lower interest rate. That's the key. That's the only real reason to refinance. But I just thought I'd mention that, that, you know, it matters. To comparison shop, but you can, it's more than comparison shopping. It's also getting some of these cashback bonuses because in real estate, a lot of times if you're doing like a, a refi or something like that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Bo, but you have to actually pay money to get, you know, something appraised or you have to pay a bank, maybe a, an origination fee and student loan refinancing. The market is so hot and competitive for good borrowers right now that they'll actually kind of pay you to refinance, which is kind of shocking
1: do you have any advice for people they might be either college students going into college i mean high school students going into college or working professionals you know engineers and accountants a lot of them also go for their master's degree right so these people who are considering taking on some student loan is there any uh preventive measures that they can take ahead of time
0: in terms of preventative measures you know if you're planning like 20 years into the future for your kid Actually, one of the best preventative measures is to maximize your own retirement savings and not put away any money for their college. Because I was just looking in prep for this podcast tonight, I just thought I'd find a fun example. So, Princeton University, if you make less than $65,000, they'll let you go for totally for free. So, you know, if you have a kid and you want that kid to go to Princeton, then, you know, one of the things you should know is one, you want to manage your income a couple of years before they go, you know, so it's artificially low, right? And then two, They don't, they look at your assets. They want to see if you have a lot of assets because they don't want to pay for your school if you can afford to pay for it otherwise, right? But what they don't do is they do not look at your retirement assets, which means you could have a couple million dollars in retirement savings or, you know, real estate in your IRA or something like that and they wouldn't show at all. But if you, you know, put that money into the bank or you put it into raw land or you put it into an illiquid asset that's not a retirement savings or even if you put it into 529, they're going to see that, and they're going to expect you to contribute a large part of that to your, uh, you know, to your child's education. So if you're planning twenty years in the future, I would say first max your, your own four hundred one k, and then if you have money left over, pretty much five hundred dollars a month will probably cover tuition at most any place, in, okay. you know, in twenty years. So that's a good kind of ballpark per kid if you want to just have everything covered. And then the uh, the other thing I'd say um, would be if you're planning for your own education. You know, if you want to use traditional debt repayment rules, don't borrow more than what your expected income is about five years after graduation. So, if you're going to, you know, med school and you're going to make 300k, you know, as a as a surgeon of some sort, then don't borrow more than 300k. You know, um, if you're going to art school and you're going to be an artist and you're going to earn 40,000 a year, so don't borrow more than 40,000. You know, that's a good rule of thumb. That said, you can make a good argument. That because of the way our student loan system is in America, it's really a tax, not a debt, because the, once your you know, debt gets so high relative to your income, they take a percentage of your income, even if it's a million dollars, they're taking a percent of your income. So by that measure, if you can go make more money and have 10% of it taken out and make more money after that deduction than what you'd make as a, you know, a college grad just with a bachelor's degree, then it makes sense to go take out a ridiculous amount of debt. And it's terrible to say, but that's what the reality is. So you know, I would just say for somebody thinking about the debt, like I think that before you take it out, like go do something weird. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of doing strange things. So go travel the world, buy a real, rental property that's a low risk property, and manage it and see what that's like. Try to start a business, and you'll probably fail, but that'll be a great experience. You know, take up a, a cooking class, and don't don't go get a you know a culinary degree, but you know, go try to you know make every single meal on. Like a HelloFresh or one of those kind of things, and uh, do something really strange and just see if if you're still as excited by that professional degree as you were when you were sitting in senior year and you had no idea what you were going to do next, and so you just followed a path of least resistance.
1: Yeah, no, I love that advice because I'm just thinking back to you know 10 years ago when I was trying to first decide my major. I had no idea what I what I wanted to do, and I'm I'm feeling like. A lot of high school students um, and even some college students are feeling the same way. Right. And then they get themselves into this you know, insane amount of debt and then they decide to change careers or they get a job that has nothing to do with their degree, which is fine. But now they've just put themselves in a financial position that's going to really be hard to claw back out from. And I love what you said about the Princeton example, because I have my ideas on, you know, the way this economy works is really funny how if you are in the middle class, I feel like you're truly at a disadvantage. You either have to be poor because growing up, I was, our family was not well off. That's why I was able to get grants and scholarships. And I didn't end up with a bunch of student debt. But if you're also in the upper class, then of course, they want you to pay for all of your education. And, but you can afford it, right? So if you're in the middle class, you're not poor, you're not rich to pay for it, then you just have to continue to pay. I don't know if I'm making any sense, Travis, but I feel yeah, like, are. yeah, it's, it's very interesting how this is all set up.
0: And I want to talk about a middle class mistake I see pretty often. So a lot of like immigrant communities and a lot of immigrant families that I see, you have the first generation, which comes over to America with nothing, right? And they just pour all of their labor into building something. And a lot of times they'll they'll be really invested in real estate. I don't know why, but that just seems like that's very common. Like I think you know, immigrant families like they don't maybe understand like non physical assets as well as physical assets. Like they know if they own that building, they own it, right? We can touch it. Yeah, you can touch it. It's real. You know, it's 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 something that exists. It's insured by the insurance company if it burns down. So you you know, it's it's a real thing. And so I see a lot of, of immigrant families like that they really like to invest in that kind of stuff, including in, you know, their own home. So they'll view their own home as an investment. And what I see a lot of times is these you know, families will take that money out of their home, and then they'll, uh, and they'll use it for their kids' education. And that's usually a big mistake. So I see a lot of this happen a lot, and it's really unfortunate. And then the, you know, the expectation is the kid's going to go to dental school or med school or pharmacy school. And then with this higher income that they're going to get because their parents paid for it, they're expected to pay, you know, for their their own parents and the mortgage for the, you know, the house that they took out or the mortgage they took out. I mean, so that's that's a huge mistake. Like, you know, student loans should be used to finance education and nothing else. So, you know, for people out there that think, oh, I'm going to do a cash out refi or I'm going to do, you know, some sort of special, you know, second mortgage or something to put it towards, you know, my, my education or my kids' education. That's a bad idea. The interest rate being low is not a good reason because a lot of cases, people that are, you know, if you're going to cover only a part of somebody's education, that person probably needed to go for loan forgiveness, in which case you're just needlessly creating two payments for them. And if, you know, the person had a small amount of debt, then they should be able to just take out, you know, maybe a subsidized Stafford loans and pay a 0% interest rate. So, it's just interesting to me how many families I see make this mistake. It's getting less common because the tax rules changed and now you can't deduct home equity interest anymore for non-real estate related projects. Uh, but but it's just something that I, I've seen so many times and it's real tragic.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. It seems like you're paying debt with even more debt and it's you're kind of cross-collateralizing uh, your home. So that seems like a very slippery slope to me as well. So. Is there any tips and tricks that you'd like to share with our listeners in terms of, I guess, overall dealing with student loans, if there's anything that we haven't covered so far?
0: Sure. I mean, so your listeners are primarily real estate investors, right? Or interested in real estate. So, you know, real estate is a great way to build long-term wealth. And, you know, one of the crossover kind of topics that I've learned from student loans is I always ask people this question, like a lot of people are terrified with their debt growing. They hate the fact that they have negatively amortizing debt, which meaning that they're paying less than their required uh, payment would be to cover the interest every month. And so the pseudo loans grow and grow and grow, and eventually you have to pay them off and they're forgiven. You have to pay income taxes and the forgiven balance, because forgiven debt is taxable income according to IRS rules. So these people watch 200 k know, become 400 k and they're like, this is sick to my stomach. I can't sleep at night. And I say, okay, what if you had $4 million and 400000 in debt? How would you feel? They're like, I'd feel pretty good. And so I said, exactly, because you'd have a positive net worth of, you know, 3.6 million, right? So a lot of times, like in the real estate world, you know, that's how a lot of conservative investors use leverage, is they won't go off and have, you know, you know uh, uh, 80%, you know, leverage, you know, on every single property, they won't, you know, uh, 20% loan to value, they won't have that on every property, maybe they'll have 50, or maybe they're super conservative, and they have, you know, they own 80% equity in all their properties, and they only use debt just for a little bit of a boost you know? So for, for that kind of, you know, scenario, I, I think that people need to really worry about having their assets be way bigger than their student loan debt. And if they're going to do that by paying down their debt first and then focusing on assets, if they're going to do it really quickly, that's okay. But you know, a lot of people need to, to realize it's about your net worth. It's not about your debt. It's not about being a dollar zero, you know? So that's, that's one, one tip I'd say. And, and if for people interested in real estate, if you have a lot of student loan debt, Real estate could be a great way to tax defer a lot of your gains and, you know, very efficiently invest in, in, in assets that grow your wealth. And it can even, in some cases, you know, give you the opportunity, I think, for some write-offs. I think I had somebody from the bigger pockets community reach out because I'm certainly not a real estate expert. And he showed me some, like, ability to write off a little bit of income off of his adjusted gross income, which lowered his student loan payment because it's based on your taxable income. So I think that there are some tricks available to, to real estate investors that are not available to other people and growing long-term wealth. So uh, that, that would be my main, my main kind of suggestions for your listeners would be, you know, over two times your income and debt, you know, probably need to figure out forgiveness. You know, less than one times your income and debt, probably need to figure out refinancing. You know, somewhere in between, you know, you might need to kind of debate what the best path is and, uh, and you know, somebody like, like us could probably help you talk through that.
1: And I was also wondering if you can speak to our listeners a little bit about the income driven plan that you've mentioned on your blogs, because I liked how you incorporated uh, some retirement account strategies. I personally love, you know, as a W-2 worker, there isn't a ton of tax strategies that you can do with a W-2 income. And that's why I love real estate. But what I realized is that I can maximize my 401k and IRAs, and I take a loan from my 401k to buy income producing real estate and I pay back the interest to my 401k by myself, and you know I'm paying myself an interest, I get tax benefits on my W-2 income, and I'm growing my net worth with real estate, so I feel like I'm kind of hitting it from multiple cylinders. Can you kind of explain to us how the income-driven plan and retirement account strategies work?
0: So if your income is, I'm gonna use an easy number here, I'll say your income is $78,000, and you're single and you have 200,000 of student loan debt and you're eligible for all the different income based plans so you are trying to figure out what your payment's going to be so 78,000 you you first get a deduction of 150% of the poverty line so you know that's about $18,000 which is why I chose 78,000 as your income bo and so 78,000 minus 18 is 60 so then they're going to take that remaining 60k and they're going to take 10% of it so that's $6,000 a year or five hundred dollars a month. If you put away money into retirement plans, that if it's done on a pre-tax basis, then that comes off of your taxable income. Which means instead of taking that you know seventy-eight minus eighteen, they'd subtract on top of that anything you contributed to a retirement account. So let's say that you contribute the maximum for twenty nineteen, which is nineteen thousand dollars. So then your your seventy-eight k income, you know, would be lower by nineteen thousand dollars, right? And then so you would subtract that nineteen k from the eighteen off of the seventy-eight. And so like if you say seventy eight K minus eighteen K minus nineteen, that's forty one thousand instead of sixty. So now they're taking ten percent of forty one thousand, which is forty one hundred dollars. And then if you take, you know, that number and divide it by twelve, you know it's roughly like what, like three hundred fifty dollars a month or something instead of five hundred a month. So you saved uh you know you saved significant amount of money every month by contributing to retirement, which is something that everybody should be doing anyway especially with social security for our generation, probably not going to be, not going to be nearly as generous. Right. No. So, I mean, so that's, that's an example. I call it the indirect 401k match because what it's basically saying is you're getting rewarded for every dollar you put into your retirement, you basically get 10 cents back with a lower student loan payment. So, you know, that's not nearly as good as like, you know, the kind of matches that are like, okay, you put in six, I'll put in three, you know, percent, like a lot of employers do where it's a partial match. So it's It's a relatively modest match, but it's still a match. And it's a match on your full contribution instead of a certain percentage of your income. So that's why I think that contributing to retirement accounts, HSAs, other weird accounts like 457s are really important.
1: For all my friends out there who live and die by the, the 2% cashback or 5% cashback credit cards, well, Travis just gave you a 10% <laughs> right off the bat. So that's a very good strategy. As we near the end of our show, um, I'm curious to hear what your plan is for 2019 and beyond for your company. What are some of your goals? I know you mentioned numerous times that you know your company is there to help people tackle student debt
0: and take back you know control of their financial future. What's in the future for you? It's a great question. So you know our, our company's um, revenue has consistently grown um, because the loan problem is continues to get worse and worse, uh, but it's kind of interesting. It's a little stressful on a personal level uh, because the Congress is wanting to make student loans way more simple than they are now. So they're trying to pass a law that would create two payment plans. One, one's a 10 year plan and one's an income based plan. And that'd be it. And right now there's like nine different payment options. So, and, and that's not including refinancing. So if you have two plans instead of a bunch, then the reason for somebody like us to exist is less so, I would expect that we would still make money off of like refinancing or you know private loans or I don't know something like that, but it wouldn't be nearly as as um profitable as today and I should be happy about that because that means you know the system is a little easier to navigate, and uh maybe I can just go working on a different problem you know so uh so that's that's something that will yet to be determined uh you know if if what happened to student loans ha- like happens like it did from the tax code. And there's a chance that student loans could get simple yet also get way more complicated, you know, with things like the, you know, like how the tax code had the small business deduction and the real estate opportunity zones, you know, and all these crazy things that like open up, there's just huge new can of worms to learn about. So uh, I think that, you know, we'll either be uh, this time next year, we're either going to be significantly larger than we are now or significantly smaller. And I, I would be very shocked if we're a similar size, it's yeah. funny
1: you mentioned the opportunity zone because in my uh, Facebook mastermind groups and bigger pocket forums, I feel like every other day I see a new post about, hey, opportunity zone question, tax question, and do you have a good attorney? So, <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently,
0: yeah, one, one, one CPA presentation I went to, uh, they said something about how, like, even equity and businesses that are located in opportunity zones can be eligible for, like, the tax free deferred growth. Hmm. So, we're a startup technically located in an opportunity zone in the city of St. Louis. So I thought, shoot, does that mean I should be raising capital because they'll just give me like any valuation I ask for, cause it's tax free growth, you know? And one of the CPAs made a joke that he's like, you know, you know, tax benefits on a crappy investment is still bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Like if it's a bad investment, you're going to get zero back. It doesn't matter what kind of gains you get. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Uh, So I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, the, it's just, it just gives you an example that like, you know, if they, if they do create like every, every time they're trying to simplify student loans, it like raises a new problem. Like right now, you know, uh, people can file separately for income taxes and exclude their spouse's income and certain plans. They want to do that, do away with that. Well, then there would be a huge disincentive to get married. So is, is America ready for like a whole bunch of people just not getting married because of their student loan debt? Uh, you know, people want to deduct the paycheck, deduct student loans from your paycheck. If they do that, then there's going to be a lot of people that live to paycheck to paycheck. They're not going to be able to afford rent, uh, you know, in some months. And then, you know, there's talk about making college free. Well, I mean, as as good of an idea as that sounds, you know, obviously what we've done so far in getting involved a lot in in the student loan space has made college and professional programs much more expensive. So uh, there's no good solution on either side of the aisle to tackle this that I've seen, basically every plan I've seen would create unique weird problems. Like for example, one proposal recently I identified that it would literally create basically a seventy five year IBR plan. So for certain people. Like so certain people that have certain incomes relative to their debts, they would literally have to pay their loans for seventy five years. Did you just say
1: IBR plan?
0: Yeah, it's it's not gonna happen. It was it was a proposal uh, By you know the the House kind of uh Republicans, what does that stand for? Income based repayment i b r
1: oh okay so,
0: yeah, so no it was it was just a new version of that, and they okay. were trying to get people to pay a fifteen a fifteen percent of your income plan yeah. with like no cap well basically, the cap was like what you'd have to pay in principal and interest on the standard ten year plan yep. and so what that basically means is like some people would never hit that amount ever in their entire lives, yeah, you know. And so that means that you'd have a lot of people that borrow the max for school that literally be paying student loans until they're 90 something years old. Oh, jeez! You know, so that would obviously be pretty, you know, pretty, pretty depressing to have that happen for people. So even if it does have an amazing net present value. Yeah. <laughs> Fully
1: know, amortize that 75 years.
0: <laughs> well, I, t- I said, you know, I, t- I tried to say like, hey, this is, uh, you know, this would suck from an administrative standpoint, but it'd be amazing from a from a math standpoint, I mean, you look at the net present value on a stream of cash flows discounted, you know, over 75 years, you basically went to college for free. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. Um, i take that loan for a real estate any day. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so that, Mike, you know, there's just all kinds of things that could happen. Like Trump came out with an education, depart, uh, education budget today. He basically has the same exact position that he's had since he won office, which is he wants to have a 30-year repayment plan. Senate Republicans want a 20-year one. House Democrats want to expand loan forgiveness and make it eligible for all these new people. So it's just a mess. So if it stays a mess, Bo, I'll I'll have a great business. Um, And I think that's probably why there's not a ton of competition in this space is because no big company wants to make huge capital investments in something that's literally going to change tomorrow.
1: Gotcha. Well, it seems like you have a wealth of knowledge. If our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, uh, how can they reach you?
0: Uh help at studentloanplanner.com is our email address. So reach out to that and uh myself or one of the team of CFPs that work for me will get out uh get get back in touch with you real quick. And then uh, if you have, you know, just general questions, I'll go to the I would direct people to the blog. You know, we've got so much free stuff in the blog. Basically, if you search student loan planner plus anything you could possibly imagine, we've probably written about it. So you'll find something uh that's applicable for your situation and then, you know, whatever your profession is you know, go read the free stuff. If you like free stuff. And if you just are like, wow, this is really annoying. I don't want to deal with this. You know, you can hit the easy button and hire us. (laughs) Awesome.
1: Well, I'll have all of that information and more in the show notes for this episode. If you thought that was helpful, please do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes. We'll see you right back here next week for another exciting episode of the Bigger Cashflow podcast. Thank you for your support and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Bigger Cash Flow podcast. Please remember that opinions of the guests are their own and nothing on this show should be considered personal or professional advice. Please consult your tax, legal, or financial advisor for personal advice that fit your unique situation. See you next time.